This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And a man who spent 35 years behind bars for murder has some unlikely allies working to help clear his name. Students at Clarkston High School believe there's no way Timogen Kensu could have committed the crime. And they want to convince Governor Whitmer of that. America's prisons are overflowing, but many who are kept behind bars are just children. Thousands of youths are tried as adults in the U.S. every year, and some are given life sentences in the country's harshest jails. Many then find themselves becoming victims of sexual violence and suicide. Authorities in western Pennsylvania have charged 11-year-old Jordan Brown as an adult. The boys will have one trial together in adult court. The length of his sentence is also the length of his life. They're not old enough to drive, drink, or vote, but in America, kids as young as seven years old can be tried as adults. Our mission at Death by Incarceration is to shed light on a system that viciously targets marginalized people. The United States is quickly moving back to the crime and punishment model that made us the most incarcerated country in the world. We feel our message and show are more important than ever. This country has a human rights crisis. It's not about politics, it's about what our moral obligations are to our fellow citizens and how we treat other human beings. In the words of the great Bell Hooks, for me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? During our first season, we realized that most of our conversations revolved around men, virtually ignoring the impact mass incarceration has on women and girls. Suave and I have interviewed over 20 women for our next series of episodes. We have some amazing stories to share and are proud of the work we've done to prepare for the next phase of our show. Over the past quarter century, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than it did in 1980. More than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. This week, we interview Paula Kensu wife of Timogen Kensu. Timogen is currently serving a life sentence in the Michigan Department of Corrections for a 1986 murder he did not commit. This is one of the craziest convictions we've studied for our show. Needless to say, it's been well covered by the media. I highly recommend that everyone listen to Unjust and Unsolved with Maggie Freeling, episode 14, for a detailed dive into the Timogen case. We discuss his conviction, what it's like to advocate for your spouse, the politics that surrounded his case, and the frustration of knowing the person you love is wrongfully convicted. Paula was both sincere and very open about the facts surrounding her husband's conviction. So what really happened? We may never know, but we do feel strongly that the Michigan Conviction Integrity Unit and the Attorney General should do the right thing and exonerate this innocent man. Please look into this case. 
and please call the state of Michigan's AD's office and ask her to do the right thing. Thank you so much for listening. So my name is Paula Kensu, and I am the fiance of Temujin Kensu, who's um, wrongfully incarcerated. He's in the Michigan Department of Corrections, accused of murder from 1986. Um, and the murder occurred in a parking lot, and the young man that was killed um, was a college student there. And Temujin, my fiance, had previously dated this um, man's fiance at the time and he ended up um, getting shot and killed in this parking lot and so fingers got pointed towards um, Tamojin and uh, he was actually living up north he had dated Crystal for a period of time and moved up into the upper peninsula of Michigan and uh, with his with his girlfriend Michelle Woodworth and over 400 miles away and he has nearly a dozen witnesses that placed him in the upper peninsula at the time of the murder and the prosecutor came out with this outlandish theory that he chartered a plane even though he was broke flew down to the lower peninsula killed scott with a shotgun you know somehow got a ride back to this airplane that evidently landed at a field or something and then flew back up to the upper peninsula in time to be seen by his alibis however the jury wasn't giving any evidence of such a flight they weren't given a flight plan no pilot was found no plane was found it was just a bonkers case that they, he was just he was the only person that the police looked at. They never really did an investigation. They just heard that he, you know, was into ninja and they pointed the finger at him and they um, accused him of this murder and then they never did any real investigation whatsoever. So there's a tremendous amount of evidence of his innocence. You can find online, you can hear multiple different podcasts. There's a lot of information out there on it. And I've been fighting for him since I learned about the case. I learned about the case online. I read an article in the Detroit News. There was an article that talked about Temujin being in prison for another Christmas for a crime that he couldn't commit, couldn't have committed. And I was familiar with the case because I grew up in the same small town that the victim lived in, in the small community. Um, I went to Croswell Lexington High School. He lived in Croswell. And so when I was 11 years old, I heard that Scott Macklem had died and that he was shot, but I never knew who killed him. I never knew that somebody was put in prison. I never knew of a wrongful conviction. I never knew any of that. Um, I just heard somebody, you know, died and I went on with, with my life. I was 11 years old at the time. Timogen Kensu, formerly known as Fred Freeman, has been behind bars since 1987 for the murder of a college student in Port Huron. As our Victor Williams reports, new light is being shined on the case and it's revealing many things that just don't seem right. Well, 30 years behind bars is a long time for anyone to be away, especially if they claim to be innocent. But not just for Mr. Kinzu himself, who's been behind bars since the tender age of 23, but every single private investigator who's worked on the case, as well as a high-powered judge, they all believe that he's innocent. So I heard about the case online from an article that I read on um, Facebook, and it was an article in the Detroit News that had been posted online and 
I had heard of Scott Macklem, but I never knew that they caught it. You know, somebody who was associated with killing him. I had never heard anything, any case updates throughout the years or anything like that. So when I read about it as an adult, I was quite shocked. And I was at my mother's house and I, after I had read the article and I did a little bit of research online, I, I asked my mom, I said, mom, do you remember that guy, you know, Scott Macklem that got killed? And she's like, oh yeah. She's like, I said, did you know that they, you know, that they convicted somebody and that he's potentially wrongfully convicted? And she's like, oh, that guy was totally railroaded. She's like, that guy's innocent. She's like, they've done case updates on him. And I was surprised that she had known about it and she believed in Temujin's innocence and she um, had heard about it throughout the years. I did some more research just on my own and then I thought, you know, I wonder if he has help in his life. You know, I checked out his Facebook page and it looked really outdated. In the article that I read, it mentioned that his wife, Amiko, had died in 2012. So I thought to myself, gosh, who's helping him with this case? And is anybody helping him? And does he have good people in his life? And I mean, how, how horrible, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that wrongful convictions happened as much as they did after, you know, researching more. I, I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to write to him. And I have a, a nephew who's in the system, who's in prison. And so I, I communicate with my nephew on JPay. So I knew that there was this mechanism to basically send an, an, an email type communication to an inmate if you knew the inmate number. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just do that. And so I did. I, I looked up his inmate number and I added it on, onto my JPay account and I reached out and just said, hi, you know, my name's Paul. I read about your case and I'm shocked in a way. I told him I'm shocked in one way because I, I knew about the case, but I was really surprised to hear that you were wrongfully convicted. And then I said, I'm not really surprised because I know how St. Clair County is and part of this doesn't surprise me either way I'm really sad to hear about this and if you need help then you know I'd write a letter to the governor or if you need some help or assistance in this you know I'd like to help and um, I think that was like on a Friday or something that I wrote to him and the following Monday he replied and then we just kind of started conversing back and forth uh, through JPay. And then after a, a few weeks, I think we, he's, I think he said it, you know, it might be easier just for me to call you. You know, do you want to give me your phone number? So he gave me his phone number and then we started, you know, talking on the phone. Our, you know, over time, our friendship blossomed and, and then we became engaged. And so talk a little bit about how, I mean, one of the things we know is how quickly you can be convicted of a crime and how difficult it is when there's a mistake in that conviction to get things back to to court and talk about sort of the how long how long have you two known each other now i met him on december it was december 27th 2019 okay and so and, yeah talk uh, talk a bit about um about kind of the that was him calling me okay <laughs> sorry no so you know i'm i I was, I'm shocked to hear the process to undo a wrongful conviction because mm -hmm. in a case, especially like Temujin's, where you have massive, you know, evidence of innocence, mm -hmm. you know, he, you would think that, you know, after certain things are found out about a case that you would be able to, there's, you know, would be some appeal mechanism or something that would allow for him to submit an appeal or go back to court, go back to a judge, get an order, do something. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's been through multiple appeals. He actually, one of his appeals, 
he he won it was a habeas and it was in 20 i think it was in 2017 i could be wrong about the year but it went before a federal judge and the federal judge um actually entered more information that he submitted into the record that he provided and she said that that there was prosecutor misconduct and that he should be given a new trial or or release and that was I know it was over a decade, it was 2011 it happened, and so it was over a decade ago. And that was by federal um, Judge Denise Page Hood out of the 6th District Eastern Court in Michigan. Okay. But unfortunately, that was reversed due to a timing technicality that had nothing to do with his actual innocence. Mm-hmm. But they they took it they sent it down to some other court out of state, and they took they basically took it back or reversed it on him. Interesting. So talk a little bit because, you know, we again, I, I highly recommend people go to Unjust and Unsolved and listen to Timogen's case on on mm-hmm. Maggie's podcast. She did a great job. And it's I mean, it's one of the most bonkers cases I've ever heard. Like when you talk about mm-hmm. the chartered plane, I mean, they basically said he was like a murder ninja. Like it was like it. they almost gave him like superpowers in the in the in the court proceedings you know and and uh just like he could suddenly appear somewhere and then just kill somebody and disappear again you know and it's just like it's crazy um but i think um what we're interested in is that you know as an advocate that's outside talk a little bit about your experiences with the system you know trying to get a hold of him being charged money to talk to him like the denial of things like zoom meetings and, and with the press etc because i think that's of interest too because regardless of whether you're wrongfully convicted or not you know the system does its best to sort of like disappear you right you know? yeah i mean i honestly it's crazy between the two communication systems that you have um within the prison the gtl and the jpay it's almost as if i don't know how much control the mdoc has over those mechanisms but you know the delays and the the uh, all of the glitches the phones um the calls dropping there's you know you can't see the video when you're on a video visit there is just it's it seems too coincidental mm-hmm. you know i mean i i work for a bank i have you know i work in you know like um where I have a vendor relationship that I work with and we have SLAs or service level agreements. We have certain metrics that we have to meet in order to uphold the contract. And it seems as, as though, you know, availability or, you know, abandonment rate or all of those metrics that, you know, that I know exist, that they don't exist within the MDOC in their contracts or it's highly manipulated or it's intentional. And, mm-hmm. You know, the truth could be somewhere in the middle. I don't really know, but it just seems as though, like, to your point, you know, you're trying to be silenced almost. You know, don't, for one one example, recently is they had a scabies outbreak at the prison where Temujin is, and they forced you to either take some sort of medication, which was highly toxic, or, you know, be thrown in the hole for six weeks. Now, the the punishment of being I mean it's truly a punishment to be thrown in the hole for six weeks because that's longer than you would get if you were to try and get a shank and stab somebody Temujin said Uh it's it's like but then when you're thrown in the hole you can't communicate at all you can't have any phone calls you're not let out it's just 
it's a horrible existence. Right. And, and so between all of the things that they do, it's just layered on top of each other. Uh, to be constantly prohibited from communicating, it's highly frustrating for him. It's, it's frustrating for me. It's, frust- it's, it's the tension on the relationship. You know, he'll send me a JPEG and I won't get it until three days later. And then, you know, he'll be like, well, why did, did you did you do this thing that I asked you to do? And I'm like, well, wh- what are you talking about? And he's like, well, I sent you a JPEG four days ago. Did you read it? And I'm, you know, I, I never got it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that's, it's frustrating. I mean, we both were aware of, of the delays, but it's still it's still frustrating and it's and it's difficult. It makes things very difficult. Yeah, I mean, and what happened during COVID as far as like physical visits? So for the visitation, you used to be able to, as long as it was as, as it was your person's day, you could go and show up on that day. You could, as long as you were on the visitors list, the prisoners list, you could go and, and show up at eight o'clock in the morning and stay until 10 o'clock at night. But But since COVID, they have all of these rules where, you know, we have to be COVID tested, rapid tested before we go into the prison. We have to wear a mask. We have to be six feet apart. There's a glass partition between us. There's only one hug allowed at the beginning, and it's a two-hour visit. And it makes it hard for somebody like, you know, Tamojin, who's, he has an ADA accommodation for, you know, he's, he's supposed to have hearing aids, but they've even, even that has been just a fight from the beginning trying to get him fitted hearing aids that work that's a whole separate issue but for me to be six feet behind a partition and him trying to hear what I'm saying is difficult you know COVID is it's not been made it easy and then our, our visits are more limited you can only visit three times um, per month Per, per inmate so I can only go and see him three times in a month and it's only for two hours whereas before I could go twice a week all day long you know every every week so essentially eight ten times a week for up to ten hours yeah um, I mean that's it's a, that's a whole different ball game I mean it, we've heard from a lot of different people how difficult visits are and I don't know if you know who my co-host here is he's being awfully like surprisingly quiet but Suave was in prison for 31 years in the state of Pennsylvania and was convicted at 17 for murder that Maggie uncovered he did not commit so you know we we uh we have some experience with some of the people you've worked with as well and you know Suave can speak a little bit to what visitation was like for him and and some of the the pitfalls and and uh you know the blockers that were put up by the system to keep people from really being connected with their families and friends so have yeah. you got anything for for paula yeah yeah <clears throat> i mean visits are extremely important in these situations especially when you have somebody out there advocating because you want to know what's going on on a day to day with the case because uh in prison we live in a bubble we really don't know what's going on gtl JP, it's nothing but a goddamn scan. Um, you got to pay for your emails going out. Nowhere in the world we, we pay for emails out here to send out. But in there, you got to pay. I know in Pennsylvania, it was 25 cents an email. I don't know how much is in Michigan. Sometimes the emails don't go out. They take your money. There's no refunds. The tablets that they sell us, they're bogus. they tinky toys, but they want $200, $300 for them. 
Um, so yeah, I understand that. But for me, you know, the question I have for you is, what what does a day look like in your advocacy and trying to get his freedom? I spend so many hours online. I do. I've reached out to absolutely every. But I I've been to. I've organized rallies. I've been to rallies. I've written to the the governor a dozen times. Not a dozen. A hundred times. A couple hundred times. I've. I've written to everybody that I can think of. I I try and get as much noise and media coverage as I can around this case. I reach out to every podcast that I hear of. I ordered free Temujin masks and I distributed them to all of his friends and family and asked them to post it on social media. I reached out to, to instructors of criminal justice classes, asking them to review his case. Um, we've had a couple um, schools review his case and then um, reached out to our governor with letters and then we publicized that. I have, it, it, it's just completely nonstop. I, I mean, I have a, a whole list of things that I've done. You know, I keep one note of, of all of the people that I reach out to and contact and I, I'm just constantly writing to people, calling people, anybody who will listen, books, authors, media, radio, every news group that I can think of just to try and get noise around it because that's the only time his case seems to move is when there's people that, you know, are, are broadcasting it and talking about it. Have you reached out to the victim's family? I'm sorry, to who? To the victim's family because, you know... I. Involved in all this, there is a victim's family out there that, you know, sometimes we leave the victim's family out the equation when in reality, if we feel that an individual is innocent or wrongly convicted, I think that it's best to engage the victim's family and try to get them to see what you see. Yeah. You know, I, when it comes I to agree. I've reached out to other people and asked them to, you know, try and, and contact. They everybody, everybody that we've ever had reach out to them. They have no comment. They hang up on us. Our private investigator has reached out to them. We, they just, they just want zero. They believe that Temujin did this and there's no changing their mind and they really don't want they'll never speak about it so in in Temujin's case one of the interesting things about his case is that this the victim was found to have been involved in some drug dealings and so his father was a prominent individual in the community he was a mayor and so Scott Scott was dealing drugs from all of the sources of all of the information that we could find out from our investigator it, it proves to him selling drugs and being involved in in drugs potentially using drugs and so the the best way for the family to to kind of deal with this is to cover up his misconduct and to try and vilify somebody else and to make somebody else the bad guy. So instead of looking at the facts of the case and of, I mean, there was no police investigation whatsoever. They never asked the family, where was Scott the night before the murder? They never, they don't know where Scott was the day before the murder, what he was doing or where he was staying or who he was with and his friends won't answer. And it's because 
they're trying to cover up that there was drug abuse and that he was selling drugs when he was when he was shot. He was at the college. He had a poor attendance record. He was flunking his classes, and he, you know, he was at the he was at the college, likely selling drugs, and it was likely a, a bad drug deal that that ended up with resulting in his death. And the so family doesn't the physical, want that out. What was the physical evidence that convicted um? Your there was no, yeah, there was no physical evidence tying Temujin to the crime. There was no DNA in the case. There was a gun shot box of shells. There was an sh empty shell box found at the scene, and there was a fingerprint on that box, but it did not belong to Temujin. They did not identify whose fingerprint it was. And there was one shell casing left behind that was never tested for fingerprints. How did he even get messed up in this? So he had been dating Scott's fiance. Scott had been engaged to Crystal Merrill, and he had dated Crystal Merrill for a couple, maybe six weeks back in the summer, months before all of this happened. He And then he broke up with crystal he moved up north with his fiance and and so when when this happened and he was they the police you know showed up to try and do you know to to ask the family what happened and who would have shot scott and killed scott that's when temujin's name came out and they said that he had dated crystal Crystal's sister actually is the one that brought up Temujin's name and said that he had dated him and that he, she said that he was controlling and he was, the prosecutor said that he was a jealous boyfriend, but that's not true. He moved away and he was living his own life 400 miles away when the murder happened. From the very beginning, there didn't appear to be a very broad-based examination of the other possibilities. From day one, he was the Suspect. He was the only one they really ever thought about as having committed this crime. He was innocent. He was with me that morning. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't do this crime. We went into town. We saw all these people. He's at least entitled to a good faith effort on the part of the prosecution and the defense to give him a fair trial. I don't think Mr. Freeman got that. You know, we have to uh, do something about the laws that prevent uh, effective civil rights suits against. Uh, police and prosecutors. There's a lot to be changed in that law, and frankly, it's going in the opposite direction. It's outrageous to me that people go to prison for crimes they don't commit. Most Americans like to think that doesn't happen. It happens, and it happens in large numbers. Race and class uh, have everything to do with how much justice you get in our system. I mean, so to, those, to the critics that may say, you know, being a drug dealer, having a record, being involved in illegal stuff don't you know don't necessarily add up to you deserve to get killed or murder so the critics that may say they may hear you and say you know like you trying to make the victim a bad guy that don't mean that he deserves to get killed what you would say to that what is the significant uh uh, uh what's his name the, the person that got killed scott scott got killed yeah He's the you know, what is the significance mm -hmm. of Scott being a drug dealer or or being involved with illegal stuff? That still don't equate to he deserved to get killed. You know, you might have some critics that might, you know, just come at you and say like, yo, just because Scott was a drug dealer don't mean he should get killed. Right. I, I mean, it, it's unfortunate that, that somebody killed Scott for sure. I mean, we don't know who killed Scott. The investigator that we hired 
you know, has a few suspects, but we don't know who killed Scott Macklem. We know one thing for certain. It was not Temujin Kensu. Temujin was, he has nearly a dozen witnesses placing him up north at the time of the crime, shortly before, during, and and shortly after. Nearly a dozen witnesses. And, I mean, there was a, the, the evidence that prosecuted Temujin, if you want to call it evidence, was a hypnotized witness. It was a perjured testimony from a jailhouse snitch who later recanted. He received favors from the prosecutor in exchange for his testimony. We have documentation, the judge signing a note saying, release Phyllis Joplin, the snitch, back to out of out of Jackson prison into a halfway house in Port Huron in exchange for, it doesn't say in exchange for his testimony on the paper, but it says highly recommend that Joplin go back to a halfway house instead of prison. We have the judge's orders signing that he's released out of Jackson prison. There's, you know, the prosecutor in the, in the trial is Robert Cleland and he was running for attorney general at the time of the, of the, during the murder. And he was being flown around the state by this pilot, Robert Bob Evans, and he put his own personal friend and pilot on the stand to to say that Temujin could have flown, made this phantom flight down to Port Huron, committed the crime, and then flown back up to the Upper Peninsula in time to be seen by the witnesses. And he never disclosed it to the jury. He never I mean, told they, them. They, but let me ask you this. Did Timogen had like private plane money? No, he was on welfare. <laughs> he was selling I, vitamins. I he, mean, I actually, because and able to do this, you got to have like, um, private plane money, which is like $30,000 and up to even rent. <laughs> right. Plane. So, you know, my question to you is this, you know, we got listeners out there that analyze everything that we put out. You know, and this is your chance now, you know, because it sounds to me like this is just a fucked up case that some racist county decided to get some trunked up charges from somebody else. Let me ask you this. Does Timogen been in trouble before this? Has so he, he had, had with the law? He, he did. He had a bad check charge out of Washington State where he wrote some bad checks and he had served some time for that. He had you know i mean he he admits he's he wasn't a perfect guy he wasn't a stand-up guy i mean i'm talking about in the county that he's been accused of committing this murder no he had nothing at all in in st Clair county whatsoever nothing no has he ever been in karate school in ninja school you know has he ever taken any ninja courses like i mean <laughs> the way it sounds like with the labels that they're putting on him, it sounds like far facts. It sounds like it sounds like shit you see in a B-rated movie. Right. right. He, this, he, this is what it sounds did. like. Yeah, he mean? he was involved in the martial arts. He had um, trained for years. He was when he was very young. He came from an abusive household. His mother used to to beat him, and um, he he started taking. Um, defense classes and in karate classes to block her hit and then he just fell in love with it and became really good at it and he had the opportunity to train under some um, very skilled martial artists here in Michigan and he was very very good at at it and he would practice 
all the time with blocks and hits and punches. And so, yes, he was, he was very much um, involved in the martial arts, but they fancied him a ninja at the trial and put weapons on display for the jury to see none of which were Temujin's, none of them he owned, but they, but they made it him out to be, you know, just this horrible person. And they never let him testify in his own defense at the trial. His attorney was drug addicted and was on probation at the time of the trial. Mm. And he never, he didn't, he knew something was up about, you know, a couple weeks in because he was like, this guy's not doing anything. He doesn't seem like he's helping. His assistant was doing more than he was. Come to find out he was later disbarred from even from practicing law in Michigan because of his drug conviction. He got, he got convicted again after he was on probation. He was not supposed to be around alcohol. It turns out he lived above a bar that he owned with other lawyers in the area. I mean, everybody knew, all of the prosecutors, everybody knew that this guy, David Dean, was a drug user, and they still let him represent Temujin. In fact, he was the court-appointed attorney on the, on the case. So, I don't want to sound too harsh, but let me ask you this. If you were to separate yourself from being his fiancée and an advocate, is there any doubt? Is there any little thing that you could say, uh, it's possible... Or maybe because sometimes you know the public might think or might say that, well, that's the girlfriend. The girlfriend is going to definitely back her man up because she want her man out. You know that's just right. common sense. But if you separate yourself from that, you know, <laughs> I right, anything, I understand. I mean, you know, yeah, I, is there anything that could cast doubt in his alibi or or his story? Is this anything? You know, there's not. And I say that no, because... I don't. I'm asking the question as a host because I don't know, right? And I'm asking questions that our listeners are probably want, probably want to know the answer to. Not, you know, I don't have no doubt that this case is a case uh, of miscarriage of justice that needs to be correct, that needs to be looked at from the inside out, top and bottom. I have no doubt about that because I know what the criminal justice system does to a person when they want to do it, right? So I had no doubt about that. But I have an obligation as a host to ask questions that some of our listeners might want to answers to. And this is why I'm asking you this question, but there is no doubt in my mind that this is a trumped up case, that this is a case that if somebody with a fair heart, somebody with a clear mind look at it we'll see that there's an injustice here so i mean i've spoken personally with several of his primary alibi witnesses michelle woodworth his you know the woman that he was living with up north has been here to my house i've met her personally she's looked me in the eye and told me i was with him on the day of the murder and i absolutely believe her and dash deal who was one of his good friends who lived up in the upper peninsula I'm friends with him as well. And he told me he was with Temujin the night that Scott Macklem was killed later in the afternoon. He and several of his friends went shining for deer. He knows 100% he was with Temujin at, I, I think it was like at around three o'clock, four o'clock in the, in the evening. And 
he, he was with him. So the timeline doesn't fit what the prosecutor wanted it to fit. So they tried making, you know, a, a theory around this phantom plane that, that didn't happen. Temujin passed the polygraph test. Michelle passed the polygraph test. And I know that those aren't 100%, but I know that he did not do that. He did not. He absolutely is not a murderer. He might not have been a stand-up great guy. He might have dated. I know he dated a, a lot of girls and he was, you know, he had a lot of girlfriends and he might not have even treated them all great. I know he was did not treat Crystal great, but I know he's not a murderer. Yeah. If you have one yeah. opportunity to speak to the family, to Scott's family, what would you say to them? I would really, I would want to know why they can't admit the truth. Like, I would want to know why they won't look at this, at, at the evidence. Because the evidence clearly shows that Temujin, it could not have been Temujin. I mean, I, I understand they're trying to, you know, hide maybe some wrongdoings of Scott. But, and I'm really sad and sorry that they lost their son, their you know their their brother i'm I'm sorry that scott was all of those things to those to those family members and i'm really sorry that they lost their loved one but it's not okay that i lost my loved one too to the system due to a wrongful conviction and it's justice was not done when they convicted temujin of this crime it it wasn't done for scott and it wasn't done for temujin i i, I just i i wish I wish they cared about who really killed Scott. I, I wish they wanted to know. I wish they wanted to know the truth because the evidence clearly shows that it, it wasn't Temujin. So it just bothers me. It's like, how can that not unsettle them? Looking at, at the evidence, I mean, you asked me to separate myself from, from Temujin. You know, I, I guess I'd ask the family, if this was somebody else, if this wasn't your loved one, if you saw all this crazy evidence, what would you say? And what, and, you know, what would you say? You can't say that this, that Temujin did this. There was no, there was, you know, no gun residue on his clothing. I, I mean, it's just the evidence is just not there. And I think, I think that's the thing is there, there's, there never was, and there's not, it's not like they're going to discover evidence at this point. If they had it, they would have definitely, put it out there and i'm i'm with suave i agree that this is a miscarriage and you know hopefully it will get undone i know he's in front of the conviction integrity unit in the state of michigan now they're going to probably have to test whether they can override local uh prosecutors and courts but i you know i think his case has got as good a chance as any he's getting a lot more press again i i just want to thank you paula for the work you're doing because there's a lot of men in there including men like timogen that don't have advocates that are doing this hard work for them and you know, so we, you know, as a as someone that has a family, and Suave has a has a partner as well. It's you know, his his he's at he's at her house right now. You know, it's <laughs> it's important to have the, the these family ties, and when you're incarcerated, you you lose a lot of that. So you know, I just want to hats off to you for the hard work you're doing. I know we like to ask a few hard questions. We don't want to leave any doubt in our listeners' minds. You know, we want to make sure they understand we're on your side, but we we want to ask those questions they can't ask because they're not on the show with us. You know, and but you know, again, hats off to you for doing this work. Thank you, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. And before we go, we ask every guest that come on the show to give out a call to action, what people could do, and you know, to advocate for their loved one that perhaps been wrongly convicted. It's your time. 
So, I mean, it, it, it's, it always, I think, helps to reach out to the conviction integrity units, to reach out to the governors who can grant, grant clemency in these in these cases. And, and then social media is just huge if they could, you know, tweet, follow, follow the case online, retweet, comment, on, and then just offer support as much as they can and share, you know, call, write letters. Those things all matter because the more noise that's around a case, you know, the more attention that it gets, the more likely the political pressure will be there, more political support, depending on how you want to look at it, that they need to know that they are supported in this decision. There's so many people that support the innocence that they should be acting based on that. So if y'all heard it here first, like we say in every show, y'all listening to Death by Incarceration, you know, a show that examine wrongful convictions and injustice in the criminal justice system from the inside out. We hold no punches. So if you heard it here first on DBI, then you know it's official. You're listening to Death by Incarceration with your hosts, Kevin McCracken and Suave Gonzalez. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Paula. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media, at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at deathbyincarcerationpodcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media, LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawl Space Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. And please, if you can, take action. Media Podcast.